on Hume's most formidable contemporary critic. Hume needs very little by way of introduction to philosophy students, read perhaps more of an introduction, though he was a man of, uh, of consequence in his own time and indeed internationally. Uh, he had a profound effect on significant figures in, in the American revolutionary period, routinely citing works by Reed, indeed even early Supreme Court cases where the decisions would refer to Reed's inquiry. We don't have Supreme Courts that refer to that sort of literature any longer. I think they generally refer to Time magazine now or something like it. Reed also had a significant influence on education in France, where his works were very well known. As best we can tell, he had no personal acquaintance with Hume. And in fact, when Reed completed his inquiry before he had it published, he wanted Hume to comment on it. And so the question was how he could get Hume to read the work. He wanted to be sure that he faithfully represented Hume's position on these key matters. They did have a friend in common, Hugh Blair, and Reed prevailed upon Blair to send the manuscript to Hume, whereupon Hume returned it, unopened, with a note to this effect. I've always believed that Presbyterian ministers should spend their time troubling each other and should leave philosophy to philosophers. Uh, undaunted, Reed uh, got back to Blair and, and uh, Blair got back to Hume and said, Davy boy, I think you better read this. And Hume did read it, and he wrote back quite, uh, in a quite complimentary way to read. Revealingly, he said if there was any part of the work that he, he thought he didn't understand, it would be that section that Reed refers to as the geometry of visibles, about which I will have a good deal to say later in, in this course. That indeed was the part that uh, one would have hoped uh, Hume would have read quite carefully. It's a section of Reed's inquiry in which he anticipates Riemannian geometry by 75 years. Well, Reed writes back to Hume after Hume's comments arrived, and if you want the spirit of the Enlightenment, I think the closing lines of, of Reed's letter to Hume might, might say it all. He says uh, in conclusion, this is very nearly a, a perfect quote, I believe, quote, and although we here at Aberdeen, sir, are all good Christian men, we would prefer your company to that of St. Athanasius himself. And we fear that if you were to write no further in metaphysics, we would have nothing to talk about at all. So, uh, you see, it didn't come to blows, it didn't come to swords and pistols. Uh, Reed stuck to his guns and late in life published two uh, collections of essays, largely amplifying what appeared in the 1764 inquiry. Now, what about Hume's final appraisal of Reed? In the last collection of essays that would be edited by Hume's own hand in the last year of his life, 1776, he sends these off with a cover letter to his publisher, Strahan, 
And he says, I believe with these emendations, I have answered all of the objections of Dr. Reed and that silly Beatty. Now he's referring to James Beatty, who did a disquisition on truth, which was a two-fisted assault uh, on, on Hume. It was quite intemperate, really. It's not philosophically deep the way Reed's inquiry is. As best we can tell, Beatty wrote this because the powers that be within Scottish Presbyterian circles were not entirely happy with how gently Reed's criticism worked, and they thought maybe something more substantial was required here, and so Beatty wrote this. Beatty was quite famous in his own time, in part for a very long poem called The Minstrel, uh, so appreciated by George IV that uh, the word was George IV would give Beatty a living in London. George IV instead gave Beatty a living in Scotland, as the king said, because that's where all my heretics are. If you ever see a, a, a quite famous painting of Beatty's executed by Joshua Reynolds, Beatty is holding his book under his arm, and behind him are the gates of hell, his treatise on truth saving us from that fate. And atop the gates of hell, the two escutcheons, if you look at them carefully, this is generally not noticed. Well, who are they? Voltaire and Hume. <laughs> um, and uh, Re Re Reynolds, Reynolds and Hume were friends, so this is obviously a sporting kind of cartoon. Uh, as for Hume, if you turn to the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy on the, on the internet, you will learn that Hume is, quote, the most important philosopher ever to write in English, close quote. And I, I think that's quite apt. He, he is the most significant writer in, in philosophy in the Anglophone. His disciples, both declared and implicit, uh, number some of the great figures in English-speaking philosophy, not least of whom would be John Stuart Mill, for example. Now, this could not have been predicted at the outset. Hume followed his older brother to the University of Edinburgh before Hume himself had reached the age of 12, his mother describing him as, quote, wake-minded, uh, Scottish for what the English probably would call clever, and what in my country we would refer to as really smart. Um, but, but he went off there with a primary interest, I should think, in, in classics. He, he, he had already befriended Cicero in, in Cicero's own language. And so when he got out of Edinburgh, there was some question about what he was going to do with the rest of his life. His family was comfortable, but it was not affluent. He was uh, urged to try law school, and uh, his powers of discernment were evident even at that time, and he judged himself not to be quite suited to that life.
But if you think that's bad, uh, he did get a job working for a Bristol sugar merchant. We could have told David that wasn't going to last very long. He started supporting himself as a tutor. And then thinking that uh, a change of scenery might help, he went off to France. And in fact, uh, there's something quite uh, coincidental. It's a wonderful irony, actually. The treatise was drafted in, in France when he was 25 years old. The great treatise. And where was he doing the writing? In the little village of La Fleche which a century earlier featured that very famous Jesuit college attended by many notables, including Descartes. I, I find it wonderfully ironic and coincidental that here's Hume, <laughs> anything but Descartes. It, it must be something about La Fleche. I'm thinking of going there myself. Might get a good, good idea. Must have the same effect on philosophical thinking that Lourdes has, in case you of paralysis or uh, something like that. Little La Flesh. So he writes the treatise, he brings it back to, to England in, in 1737 and it's published by 1739 and he describes it as something stillborn at uh, birth. He, he, he laments the fact that no one has taken notice of it. Here I think he's, he's being unnecessarily modest. It was noticed, indeed it was, it was uh, very carefully noticed. It's a great work. It's not cited that frequently, it's a young person's work. It'll be years later that he cuts it down, tailors it, refines it more, and publishes it uh, as a series of essays, inquiries into the nature of human understanding. In important respects, it's inspired by by Locke, and in significant respects, as with Locke, it is a transparent rejection of rationalistic modes of philosophizing, such as the mode made famous by Descartes himself. Now, I might have you turn to the passage taken from Descartes' Discourse on Method, which provides a, a clear uh, encapsulation of how Descartes thought philosophical issues should be pursued. What's the model? The model is geometry. The problem with geometry, of course, is that at the level of abstraction, it gives you absolutely certain and indubitable truths, but no way of establishing the reality of that about which these truthful propositions are advanced. That is, you can go through the entire body of Euclidean geometry and all of the axioms and theorems hang together perfectly without there be any, being any basis upon which to know in the ontological sense that there are, for example, rectilinear triangles or circles or spheres. So Descartes sees the geometric mode of analysis as a mode of analysis that provides us with clear and distinct ideas and now the question is how you apply this mode of analysis to the facts of the real world, to what, what is actually uh, and materially palpable. But I say the method is a rationalistic, deductive method 
where the object is to arrive at understanding so clear, so distinct, that it would be virtually contradictory not to accept them. It's essentially a logical mode of analysis. Now if you take a look at the second part of the passages taken from the Discourse on Method, this is quite interesting. He says, now why have philosophers often failed to have their understandings reach to the level of the transcendent? I can establish to my own satisfaction that there is a perfect being God in just the way that in geometry I can establish with certainty that there is a perfect circle. That is to say, I can cognize perfection, though I can't see it in reality. It, it, it isn't instanced in actual things. And the reason philosophers can never rise higher than the ordinary data of perception is because they think that's all there is. And he says in this they're following the schoolmen. Now you know what schoolmen is. Schoolmen is shorthand for medieval Aristotelians. Well, what is the maxim of the schoolmen against which Descartes is complaining, even railing? Nihil est in intellectu quod non fuerit in sensu. Nothing is in the intellect which was not first in the senses, do you see? Leibniz in his new essays will say in response to that, nisi intellectus ipsa, except the intellect itself, except the organizing mind itself. But what I find wonderfully ironic again in, in this part of Descartes, when you turn to Locke and Hume, they are committing their epistemology to the evidence of sense. They are much more inclined to be saying things like, nothing's in the mind which does not first begin in the senses. So in a manner of speaking, Descartes might judge his successors, Locke and then more remotely Hume, as very much in the tradition of the schoolmen, of the medieval Aristotelians. In fact, uh, Locke actually charges um, Thomas Aquinas with that phrase, nihil est in intellect, etc. You can't find that in Thomas Aquinas. Though it is a feature of, of uh, I'm not quite sure in whom you would find that. Uh, perhaps Boethius. Um, don't try Googling that one. Uh, has a long history within the intellectual history of uh, Catholic teaching. Uh, I wish I had more time for this, but it to some extent starts with Augustine. Once Augustine had defeated his own heretical leanings, he then took it upon himself to do battle with heretics. And of course, one of the heretical claims was that Everything's Christians, everything Christians say about God is utter twaddle because they attribute to God attributes that are so beyond the range of possible experience as to be mythic. There isn't any aspect of perfection, infinity, everlasting nature. It's a, you, 
None of this. You can't know anything about things like that because, you, because even if they were the case, you would lack the perceptual apparatus to have access to it. And what do we see Augustine doing with that? Augustine says, now wait a minute, there's, there's a, a, a mistake here. You want to say that the limit of cognition is set by the limit of perception, but that's not so. He said, every person has no trouble perceiving a four-sided figure, all of whose sides are equal and subtended by 90 degrees. Everyone can not only perceive it, but can conceive of it, right? You call it a square. Now, no one can perceive a kiliagon. That's a thousand-sided figure. Viewed at any distance at all, a thousand-sided figure will look like a circle because it's beyond the resolving power of the visual system. But everyone in this room surely can conceive of a thousand-sided figure. Therefore, we are able to form correct cognitions of that which is imperceptible. And so our, cogni our cognitions are not limited by our perceptions. The next time that example is used, it's used by Descartes without attribution, and it's exactly that example. I would say after 25 years at Georgetown, I know how sinister this Jesuit education can be. They, they must have planted this stuff pretty, pretty deep in Cartesian brain tissue. So. Now, the, um, the debt to Locke is acknowledged by Hume. And the debt is, 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 is a considerable one. If you now turn to the sections from Locke's essay concerning the human understanding, he answers in a word how the mind is furnished with ideas. He says, by experience. That's it. That's it. The mind is furnished by experience, no matter how complex the idea might be. It is finally resolvable into more elemental ideas. And those ideas are resolvable into elementary sensations. Now what's impelling Locke's thinking here? I, I, I don't want to be glib on this, but the clock ticks. Locke is an older and absolutely devoted friend of Isaac Newton's. Locke is a fellow of the Royal Society. He's, he's a doctor. He's a good doctor. In fact, he did a diagnosis on Shaftesbury that was life-saving and led to a successful surgical procedure over which Locke presided, not as surgeon, but as consulting position. Locke is understanding himself to be within the community of scientists. He's learned his science from very good sources, like Boyle. You walk on the high street, you'll see a little plaque acknowledging both of them. One way of understanding Locke's essay concerning human understanding is a Newtonian theory of mind. 
Now, what do we know about the world of reality as Boyle and Newton would have it? Well, ultimately, it's a corpuscular world. That is to say, if you had the, the perceptual resources sufficient unto the task, you would understand that no matter how reality presents itself, it is finally reducible to a corpuscular substrate. We might say today a subatomic substrate, do you see? Now that isn't something to which we have perceptual access. But those corpuscles in the physical domain match up with the way Locke wants sensations to match up with in the domain of consciousness. Elementary sensations being, in a manner of speaking, corpuscle-like. And they can be pulled together just as the corpuscular world of material objects can be pulled together to form ever more complex and ultimately visible, palpable ensembles. In the Newtonian world, this happens by way of gravity. In the mental world, there's probably some similar sort of process that pulls these things together, some kind of associative process, not, not addressed directly by Locke, something he's quite prepared, quote, to leave to the anatomists, close quote. Locke, however, goes out on a limb to the extent that one thinks it's going out on a limb when he says as a faithful, authentic, Christian person that it's certainly within the powers of an omnipotent creator. If that creator saw fit to give thought to matter, he could do it. Thinking matter. In fact, it's something of a heresy to argue that this would not be possible for God to do. Now I do hear some resonances in, in that argument. Um, when Descartes was finished with his discourse, he wanted it read and criticized by all the right people. The nexus, the intellectual nexus on the European continent uh, around which all the right people could be assembled was Father Marcin. And so Descartes asks Father Marcin, can you get this read by all the right people? Marcin agrees to be one of the readers, and he lines up uh, a few others, two of whom are quite notable, Hobbes, you've heard of, and Pierre Gassendi, who probably had uh, as high a standing in 17th century philosophical intellectual circles as any other figure of the time. You don't hear that much about him now. Very much responsible for a revival of atomistic thinking, the, um, an ontology based on what today we'd call a kind of particle physics, etc. And those, those criticisms advanced by the, those pulled together by Marcin and then Descartes' reply to those criticisms are all published. They're available in the Cambridge University Press series on, on Descartes, edited by Cottingham. But you can hear echoes of Gassendi because the Gassendi who's talking about the mental realm itself being reducible to a congeries of, of physics. Father Pierre Gassendi. 
sensing no incompatibility between the claims of faith and the possibility that a, an omnipotent and omniscient being surely could, I mean, if in six days he could put the whole damn thing together, there isn't any reason why he couldn't put a thought or two into an apple, if, if he chose to, you see. No contradiction at all between the notion of mentation and potentialities inherent in matter. What do we call that view today? Neurophilosophy, is it, or some, some other hybrid sort of thing? Neuro, neurophilosophy. Interesting. I, I hope to be gone before we hyphenate too much else. Um, now, what Hume promises in this work, even in the subtitle, of the treatise is a scientific approach. He's going to put the mental, moral world, remember moral 18th century includes what we'd refer to as mental as well. He's going to put this on a firm scientific base which means that he's going to follow the method established by Bacon and Newton, the experimental method. Now it's going to be one of the burdens of my lecture next week to give voice to Reed's convincing argument that Hume did no such thing. It will be Reed's argument that what Hume actually did, which is what Locke did, which is what just about everyone in the history of philosophy has done, is sit in an armchair and reflect on the operations of his own mind and as best as he could tell about those operations then quite heroically extending those operations to nothing less than the entire human race and whatever you might want to say about that venture it certainly is not Baconian and Newtonian Newton didn't give us Newton's world by way of introspection he had a telescope, you know, you, you know, he looked out, see. Projected light against the walls in his room and showed that you could break up white light into the spectrum. You know about that. Do you know if you use the numbers as he recorded them, you don't get the spectrum? It was a typo or a grapho or something. He got the length from the pinhole in the window to the wall. He wrote it down wrong. So if you tried to replicate the study exactly, you'd say he must have cooked the books. But it's just, uh, you know, he just scribbled. Now there's something else about Newton that I do feel constrained to mention. Um, uh, you know, there, there, there are three characteristic ways of libeling uh, great thinkers. You can do it by way of a kind of viciousness, an intentional libel. You can do it by way of ignorance. You, you just don't understand the thing and so you start imputing to somebody things he had no intention of saying. And you can do it by brevity. And of course anyone who lectures on great figures in the history of ideas knows that he's perpetrating libels and the question is how severe are they going to be and will there be enough time to correct them? Well, 
Um, when Newton finally had to explain at the most fundamental level how the Newtonian world should be understood, he makes this distinction. He says, understand that with respect to the work on gravitation, I have unearthed, listen carefully, I have un unearthed the laws by which gravity operates. But I have not identified what has gravity working the way it does. I have not unearthed the cause of gravity, only the laws that arise from it. So he's making a distinction between a genuine causal account and what we would in science refer to as a functional account. He goes on in the Principia. Suppose what you really are desperate for is that ultimate causal account. To what does Newton refer at that point, if that's your aim? You would have to consult the plan of the creator of all. That is to say, at the end, the Newtonian explanation is quite as teleological as anything you find in Aristotle. And in fact, he cites Aristotle. You, you have to look at the ends and purposes served by some orderly feature of reality if you want the ultimate causal account. And so he's already acknowledging that the ultimate causal account is not in the province of experimental science. It's something else. This, as I say, is, is something on which libel becomes almost inevitable. But uh, uh, if I look at you and say, therefore, read the Principia, I'm, I'm not sure that would be especially helpful. Some of you will do that. Um, it is great literature. Now, what is it the 17th century, the world of Galileo and, and Locke and Newton, uh, what, what is it they're getting rid of, at least as it pertains to philosophy of mind, as we would refer to it today? Well, I think I can convey what, what an older view was um, with which the 17th century would become increasingly impatient. Here's a challenge to you. When, when you go home tonight, ask your chum this question. Try to pick someone who isn't a philosophy student. Pick someone in science, if you can. Here's the question. If you sit down tonight and have a hamburger, now that thing began as a cow. And after it gets into you, it becomes you. That is, all the cowness is gone. Now that's one hell of a trick when you think about it. And it's a trick that's repeated over and over again. For example, the cow ate a lot of grass which somehow became cow, like the cow became you. 
And how do you do that sort of thing? Now, if you're sitting with some biology student, you know, you're going to get some windy exposition of the Krebs cycle and the metabolism of carbohydrate. No, but here, here's the root question. You, you start it, look here, I'm, I'm sure that there's a lot of biochemistry going on, but here's my question, Harriet. <laughs> Two days ago, this thing was mooing and it had a tail. Now it's reading Proust, and I want to know how this is done. Now, now the, the, the way the world and the patrimony of, of Aristotle and centuries of... Uh, of development out of that tradition dealt with these things was in terms of something called the substantial form of something. The substantial form of man as a rational animal, etc., etc. Now, the, the idea, the root idea is that where something is a fundamental formal principle, whatever it absorbs into itself is then governed by that principle with certain contingencies surrounding the entire operation. And those contingencies are numerous and various. So that, for example, birds normally fly unless fish are aquatic unless. So, so you end up with an account that is likely to vary species by species. And indeed, you might end up with a, a substantial form account that varies even within a species. It must. We can say the substantial form of man is as a rational animal. How do we account for lunatics? Well, you see, his father was a lunatic. And, and so you, not, you, you now need subsidiary theoretical to account for every departure from the substantial form. That this gets rather tedious at a certain point. If you think the hand try this. You can get rid of this in one fell swim by declaring that there is nothing but homogeneity across the entire range of things. What kind of homogeneity? Particulate corpuscular, atomic, and that everything after that simply requires various combinations of the fundamental ingredient. You get rid of all of the entelechy of Leibniz, the substantial form, the, you get rid of all of that invoking a different concept. And that different concept is the concept of mechanism. What is at work mechanism that takes particulate nature and by the law-governed machinery of the physical world makes things. It makes things like we make clocks. If you reduce a clock to everything that's in a clock, you'll get springs first, do you see? But you can carry on that reduction indefinitely. Do you want to say that over and against all of the, the structural, microstructural composition of clocks, there's some superordinate thing that is a clock? No. The clock is just a, 
particular configuration of matter, it could just as well have been a coach or a teapot, depending upon how the operative machinery fashions the thing. Once applied to what we are pleased to call mental life, what's the mechanism? Well, the Humean mechanism is that we start off with simple sensations. That's the ultimate grounding of everything ideational of which we are capable. And, and out of that substrate, out of that realm of impressions of sense and impressions of reflection, where impressions of sense refer to our contact with the external world by way of the senses, and impressions of reflection being the access we have to the inner workings of our own system. Out of that comes the entire panoply of the thinkable. And even when it comes to such things as unicorns, unicorns don't exist in the sense of there being unicorns, but unicorns can be fashioned out of the sensory perceptual ingredients that include horns, horse-like things, etc. All you need is a mechanism capable of pulling all this together. Well, what will that mechanism be? It will be in Hume now, the laws of association. The tendency of any ideational or perceptual component to be joined together with other such components increases with the frequency with which the two occur together in time and place the principle of contiguity. The closer they are together in space, the more likely it is that, that one of them presented will give rise to the thought of the other. The more frequently the two occur together in time, the more likely it is at any future time, the presentation of one will excite an experience or expectation of the other. And then, cause and effect. When the two events are constantly conjoined in experience, the constant conjunction principle, then, indeed, on future occasions, the presentation of one inevitably leads to the expectation of the other. And this is largely a statistical operation. Because, in fact, given the contingencies of the real world, just about anything could, adventitiously, come to be associated in time and place with something else. It could be. It has a lot to do with how we're made up and how our perceptual processes work. And this is why Hume says famously and even infamously, so you see, quote, anything might be the cause of anything. That is, if those conditions of contiguity, cause and effect, repetition, resemblance, if those core principles of association are satisfied, then you've got a causal picture. That's the picture you will have of causation. And, and causation as it is knowable, causes as we refer to causes, are exhausted by those events.
Now, there'll be a separate lecture on Hume on causation and, and Reed's critique of it. But you see what a momentous claim this is. If you take the entire business of science to be unearthing the causes of things, and it turns out that causality itself is just one of those things that mental apparatus comes to forge based on experience, do we end up with a brutal form of subjectivism? And on that, Hume scholarship varies. Is Hume a skeptic about causes in fact, or is he merely a skeptic about our ability to get outside the box of our own experiences and understand causality in some way other than his account? And on that, the literature is quite wholesomely and attractively divided, invitingly divided. I shall get into some of that. I mentioned before class that I, in one interview a few years back I was asked if I could have supper with with any three people uh, who, who, who would they be and I said well an evening with Kant and Hume going at it would be absolutely irresistible and the interviewer she said well who would the third person be and I said well at the end of the night I then want to turn to Aristotle and say okay who's right uh, so but, uh, now, when he says, and this is in the handout, all the perceptions of the human mind resolve themselves into impressions and ideas. He wants to make clear that what does vary is the force and vivacity of these impressions. Because the ideas that we form turn out to be copies of the impressions that the external and internal world make on those organs capable of being influenced by them. So what sort of a picture is he giving us? Well, here's an external world that impinges on our organs of sense. For example, right. now, you don't have clicking fingers inside your head now. So this is something going on out here. You have access to it in virtue of the fact that you have auditory apparatus. It's a very complex picture. Hume wouldn't have known all the details. They're very well worked out today. So the sound has to get through a little curved duct referred to as the external auditory meatus. And it's going to reach an eardrum which begins to vibrate. It's a very thin membrane. It's a nearly perfect impedance matching device which means the energy you capture on the inside of it almost perfectly matches what impinged on the outside of it. Very little loss in transmission. And that sets up patterns of fluid vibrations in the, in, in the uh, cochlea. And there's a long hinged membrane called the basilar membrane. So as the fluids are oscillating, the membrane beats up and down. 
and along the length of that membrane are little hair cells which behave as if they were piezo-resistive crystals, which means they give you an electrical DC response proportional to the deformation, do you see? So as the membrane whips this way, there's more stretch and pitch is laid out sequentially along the, you, you get the picture, don't you? And then finally, you're hearing something. Well, look at what the, the mediation is between this and your hearing it. So, so you do not have access to the external world. You have a means by which to represent something taking place in the external world. But as you can never get out of that box and answer the question, well, what would it be like if I had no means of mediation and recording and representing, you are essentially in the thrall of those mediational processes. Are you following me? In other words, you don't see reality. You see representation of reality. And the question then is how good a representation is it and what standard is to be invoked in an attempt to determine how good that representation is. satisfied with is that the simplest of sensations, it might be something like this, listen, if it's ever to figure as an idea in the mind, it will do so in virtue of there being some copy made of the peripheral sensory event now copied more, shall we say, centrally. So the idea is a copy of the sensation, the famous Humean copy principle. It grounds very much of Hume's epistemology. And Reed will have much to say of a copy being made of a sensation. And what evidence will be adduced to support a proposition of sort. So, we've got causality to deal with. We have representationism to deal with. What's going to oppose representationism? Thomas Reed's realist account. What is it I see when I look at the external world? Listen carefully. I want you to look at me when I say this. What is it I see on real? I look at the external world. I see what's there. And what a horrible state I'd be in if it were any different. Quote, even the lowly caterpillar will crawl across a thousand leaves until it finds the one that's right for its diet. We learn are, quote, faint images that take place in our thinking and reasoning. Impressions and ideas may be either simple or complex. The latter are just enlarged versions of the former achieved by way of the laws of association. Now later in his inquiry, he says, by the term impression, 
I mean that all of our more lively perceptions, when we hear or see or love or hate or desire or will, an impression is just the more lively of the perceptions. See. So the difference between a tiger actually coming at you uh, and the idea of a tiger is just a matter of the liveliness of the impression. And as you might guess, Reed will have some fun with that also. Uh, who ends up supper that night depends on which philosophy he has attached himself to. If he's not a realist, I would not sell him life insurance. And then finally, Hume says, with a plum, we may prosecute this inquiry to whatever length we please, where we shall always find that every idea which we examine is copied from a similar impression. Now I want to read that to you so that you don't leave with the impression that Hume is at all tentative about this. It is the linchpin of his epistemology. Carrying on, those who would assert that this position is not universally true, nor without exception, have only one, and that an easy method of refuting it. And that is by producing an idea which, in their opinion, is not derived from this source. Now suppose I say, all right, <laughs> square root of minus one. <laughs> well, and that's where Hume makes a distinction between matters of fact and simply the meaning of terms, the relational meaning of terms. So when it comes to abstract mathematical propositions, uh, these have to satisfy a kind of internal logic. They do not refer to events in the, in the external world. Uh, they are not matters of fact. If there's one thing we can be damn sure of, it's that the square root of minus one is not a fact in the sense of something accessible to the senses. Now, one other qualification that I do want to bring to your attention, which is, again, a gift of uh, Locke's, and helps us understand the distinction that Hume wants to make between matters of fact and simply the relations among ideas. Locke says, yes, he's told us that uh, I answer in a word from experience, but Locke actually says we have three sources of knowledge. There are some things we know, says Locke, this is from the essay concerning the human understanding. There are some things we know, we know them to be true, necessarily and certainly true, and we know this without reflection. Such as up is not down, black is not white. Two things cannot simultaneously, a thing cannot sim simultaneously be and not be. Now that mode of knowledge he refers to as intuitive. And he attributes this to what he refers to somewhat delphically as, quote, an original act of the mind. There are some things which we know to be necessarily and universally true, but we don't know them immediately. 
We know them by a kind of demonstration, of which the celebrated example would be Euclidean geometry. As it happens, the area of a square is uniquely determined by the length of a diagonal drawn through it. Not only is this not immediately known, there are, even as we meet, whole graduating classes from famous American universities whose students in the top half of the graduating class would have a lot of trouble establishing that the area of a square is uniquely determined by the length of the diagonal drawn through it. No one in England, of course. Um, that form of knowledge Locke refers to as demonstrative. Now, with respect to the facts of the world, the sorts of things that science deals with, that's where he answers in a word from experience. And that mode of knowledge is what he refers to as perceptive. So there are intuitive, demonstrative, and perceptive modes of knowing. So if you hit Hume with something like the square root of minus one, that's going to come under the Lockean uh, category of demonstrative knowledge. It's, it's, it's simply uh, a, a relational concept involving relations between and among I, uh, abstract ideas. But on what really matters is, is, is there a carriage outside and have the horses been fed and so forth? You, you, don't, you don't establish that demonstratively. You certainly don't know it intuitively. What do you have to do? You have to go outside and check. And when you've done so, by the way, have you actually learned what a horse really is, or have you only learned how whatever that thing is, it represents itself in your mind as a such and such? And that'll be the topic we take up when realism meets representations. Do you have any questions? We don't have a lot of time. Are you all happy? Beginning of term, yes? Uh, which category of knowledge for Hume does the association of ideas go through? The, the, percept the, the Lockean perceptive, the things that you actually experience at the level of perception. Yes? Why doesn't uh, Hume's top principle presuppose an external world? Because how can you have... Oh, it can presuppose... Yeah, surely. Oh, well, no, what's being copied is the sensation, not something in the external world. Now, you can presuppose there must be something out there causing the sensation, but that's quite different from the ontological claim, and I know what, what its nature is. All you know is the effect it has on your senses. i give you a quick illustration of this, if we're permitted. I go into the garden at home, and we have yellow roses, and they're very pretty. And some of them are still in bloom, by the way. And I will occasionally find in our garden a honeybee as much taken by the yellow rose as I am. Now, I see a yellow rose because my visual system begins with a photochemistry that responds with peak sensitivity in the wavelength band that centers on 555 millimicrons which most normally sighted people will describe as yellow. 5,500 angstroms if you come from 
that side of the street. The peak sensitivity of the visual system of the honeybee is in the ultraviolet. So the honeybee cannot see my yellow and I can't see whatever it is. The now, this raises no doubt about whether there is something being looked at in the garden. What it does say is that the apparatus I and the honeybee bring to bear on whatever that thing is will result in a representation that reflects my and the honeybee's visual systems. And neither I nor the honeybee can get out of that box to establish what the thing really is, just in case there were nothing sensing it at all. What it really is by contemporary lights would be some particle buzz of one sort or another. So you, you can be a realist ontologically in arguing that for there to be a sensation, there must be something out there causing it, but a representationalist when it comes to identifying what it is you could possibly know about it. Capito? Yeah. Yes, yes, that's, Hume, Hume at his skeptical, uh, when, when he gets to be particularly jaunty, nose tweaking, that Hume skepticism is what many, many find when they declare Hume to be an absolute skeptic. Uh, the Germans thought he was a skeptic. The Kant who was awakened from dogmatic slumber by, by Hume almost certainly read, read his Hume from Haman's translation. Haman was one of the aesthetically, romantically oriented Germans. Haman was a friend of Kant's, but he couldn't stand this logic chopping stuff and so forth. Haman said, when, when I see a logically tight argument, I react to it the way a well-bred, the way a well-bred girl reads a love letter. <laughs> sort of a shouldn't say things like that. Um, Haman refers to Hume as that attic philosopher. He just sees him doing sort of Greek skepticism all, all over again. Hume is a, is a multi, he's a great writer, but he admits of a variety of interpretations. Hume's scholarship is alive and well. There's still a question about whether Hume is skeptical about causation as we talk about causation. My own view, which is entirely uh, without authority, uh, not entirely, but it's close to being entirely, because Hume's not here to answer for himself. I think what Hume was attempting to do is, is what he tells us in the subtitle of the treatise. I think he was trying to reduce the realm of the mental to a kind of experimental science. And therefore, what the account is, is an account of how we develop causal concepts. I think it would have been quite a different story had uh, Hume committed himself to some sort of philosophy of physics, where the question is not how we arrive at causal concepts, but what the nature of causation is. And so, the side of the street I work says that I don't know whether he was skeptical about causes or not, but he certainly was skeptical about our causal concepts matching up with something in the external world that actually is causality. 
And he wasn't skeptical about that, he just said you can't do that. So. The Doughty Scots. They're a lot of fun. Hume's a wonderful writer. You'll love Reed's inquiry. It's witty, it's, it's economical, it's generous, it's wise. He's my sort of guy.